Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, an historic song preserves the memory of a famous train called the Orange Blossom Special. Everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. Remembering the sugarcane industry in Indian River County. I don't know what inspired him, but he talked some people into letting him put a, an experimental patch of sugarcane in, and it did do well. And we'll visit the fascinating Miami Circle archaeological dig. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It was exactly 22 years ago that I came to Tallahassee. champion and Chuck Glore started a little coffee house down on North Adams Street and one of the people that blew in through the door was somebody who changed my life by the example of his music the way he lived his life. Would you please make welcome Florida's Black Hat Troubadour, the Dean of Florida's Folk Song, Mr. Will McClain. a 1982 recording of legendary Florida musicians Gamble Rogers and Will McLean performing the song Orange Blossom Special at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. From 1925 through 1953, the luxury passenger train called the Orange Blossom Special traveled from Penn Station in New York City to Miami. 
Other Florida stops included Jacksonville, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, and Miami before the train returned north via Winter Haven, Bradenton, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Gainesville, and Tallahassee. The Orange Blossom Special came to Florida between mid-December and mid-April. Even more famous than this luxurious train and its wealthy passengers is the song Orange Blossom Special. Well, as the story goes, um, both Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse uh, visited the Orange Blossom Special when it passed through Jacksonville on an exhibition tour in 1938. Randy Knowles is author of the book Fiddler's Curse, the untold story of Irvin T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special. It's hard to imagine now, but this was just a huge deal. Um, this train had um, brand new um, diesel electric locomotives and Pullman cars, and it was on an exhibition tour between Washington and Miami, and it stopped in every city of any size uh, along the way for people to look at it. And now we think, well, gee, it was just a train, but at the time it was like the space shuttle coming through town. Um, in Jacksonville, schools closed. Um, they had a turnout of about 30,000 people during the two days. The train was parked there just to come and look at it. They were just awestruck by it because of its design and its technology and everything it represented. And uh, Chubby and Irvin were not immune to that. And uh, they visited the train when it came through on the exhibition tour and, and uh, as the story goes, were inspired to write the song. Even though only Irvin T. Rouse's name appears on the copyright for the music of Orange Blossom Special, the traditional story that Chubby Wise co-wrote the song with Rouse has gained widespread acceptance. Before his death in 1996, Chubby Wise repeated his claims of co-writing Orange Blossom Special. I went to Jacksonville, and uh, Irvin Rouse and myself wrote the Orange Blossom Special in 1939. Give us all the history or detail you can remember about helping Irvin Rouse right now. All right, Irvin was a, a good friend of mine, and he came to Jacksonville, and uh, they had really, the Orange Blossom Special was one of the most, I guess the first, you might say, streamlined train that the seaboard ever had. And they had it in Jacksonville at the Union Station there for people to kind of go through and look at, see? And admire the new streamlined pretty train, the Orange Blossom Special. So Irvin and I ran out of something to do. And about two o'clock in the morning, we went through that train, me and Irvin Rouse. So he went home with me. And that time I lived on 809 East Adam Street, I'll never forget it. In Jacksonville? In Jacksonville. Irvin went home with me. And Eat breakfast, so about 4 o'clock in the morning, he and I sat on the side of my bed and took our fiddle out and said, let's write. He called everybody, Doc. He said, Doc, let's write one call of the Orange Blossom Special. I said, all right, Irvin, we'll just do it. And we got our two fiddles out on the side of the bed. Now, listen to this. In about 45 minutes, we had just about written the complete melody of the Orange Blossom Special. Now, I don't remember where I wrote the whistle part or the fiddling part. It's been long. I haven't got that good a memory. But I know we did almost complete it. Well... When he started to leave, he said, Chubby, Doc, he said, let's go down and get that thing copyrighted. He said that we might have a good fiddle tune there. And I said, Irvin, I don't have any time to fool with no fiddle tune, buddy. I've got to check on my cab. I went to work at 5 o'clock in the morning and driving a 10 cent taxi cab. I told you you could go for a dime then, see. Yeah. I said, I've, that's when my daughter was a, you might say, a crawling baby. I said, I've got to go to work, check on my cab, and try to make some some food for my family here. I ain't got time to food no fiddle tune. I said, if you can do anything with it, it's all yours. I remember them very words, if it's yesterday. And he did something with it. Uh, Freddie yeah. went and, and had it uh, put in his name, of course, Irvin T. Rouse. 
And he and Gordy, I had nothing to do with the words. He and, he and his brother Gordon wrote the words on it. And looking on it coming down the railroad track. And he went and had it copyrighted. And I'm so grateful it didn't hurt my statue none at all as a fiddle player. I gave him my half of it. And if he was alive, he'd tell you the same thing. Here's Chubby's own The Orange Blossom Special by the man that wrote it. Chubby Wise is considered one of the greatest fiddlers in country music. At age 15, Wise started playing in Jacksonville nightclubs and joined the Jubilee Hillbillies in 1938. In 1942, he started playing at the Grand Ole Opry with Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys and recorded with many other artists over the years. In 1984, he moved back to Florida, recording and performing infrequently. Irvin T. Rouse lived from 1917 to 1981 and is also considered to be a great fiddle player. Irvin worked with his brother Gordon, traveling from Florida to New York in the 1930s to record and perform. Irvin suffered from mental illness and alcoholism, spending the last decades of his life playing in remote clubs near the Everglades for tips. Irvin's brother Gordon Rouse always maintained that Chubby Wise did not co-write the Orange Blossom special. The truth is what hurts. Yeah. Well, what uh, what do you think about this gentleman, Mr. Chubby Wise, uh, telling that he was a co-writer of the Orange Blossom Special? Is there anything <clears throat> to that? Well, Chubby Wise never heard the Orange Blossom Special until we 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 after we had wrote it. There you go. As far as uh, Chubby's concerned, he met us before we wrote the Orange Blossom Special. But we little later on is when we really wrote the Orange Blossom Special. And we did, we wrote it starting at Miami, 21st Street and 7th Avenue in Miami, when we seen it christened. That's, that's when we started to read it, right, right that, that day that it was christened. But he's telling that he uh, 
<coughs> helped to write that thing in a hotel room or in his apartment one night. And as you say, there's nothing to that. Is that right? Oh, well, <laughs> it's it's very very easily to say you done something sure. that you didn't do. Right. And uh, you tell people you did it, and and the people don't know whether you, whether you did it or don't. Right. Or not. That's for sure. And he's telling. And uh, so. Uh, he just told, uh, any time he said anything about it, he had anything to do with writing it, all untrue. He never even heard it until it was already on the, on the thing and being on the market and everything. Right. And uh, and then he, later on through the years, he, he made out, like just because he met us early in Jacksonville, that he <laughs> helped write, but he did not. During his research for the book The Fiddler's Curse, Randy Knowles concluded that the traditional belief that Chubby Wise co-wrote the Orange Blossom special with Irvin T. Rouse is false. Well, the accepted story was uh, that it was written, as I said, in Jacksonville by Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse after they toured the Orange Blossom special on its exhibition tour. Uh, this was the story that Chubby told repeatedly over the years, and it's the story that made it into uh, the history books and, and uh, that Chubby propagated. Um, it turns out not to have been true because my research indicated that the, the song had been written and copyrighted prior to the exhibition tour, so it couldn't possibly have happened the way Chubby described. But um, Irvin was not a person. He was he was um, he was had some serious mental problems. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic when he was young. Uh, he had very few social skills, very little knowledge of copyrights and business, and and uh, he really never, in his lifetime, stood up for himself and and said, you know, none of this is true. I I found out that it wasn't strictly accurate. At least I got a hint that it wasn't when I was doing a story for Jacksonville Magazine on songs that have a relationship to Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville has a, a pretty rich musical heritage, and Orange Blossom Special, of course, is one that was reputed to have been written in Jacksonville. And I tracked down um, Irvin's widow and reached her on the telephone and, and told her I was doing the story and how I understood that her husband and Chubby Wise had written the song in 1938. And she cut me off right there and said, I'm so tired of hearing that. I've heard that for 60 years. It's not true. Chubby Wise had absolutely nothing to do with, with writing that song. It just makes me so mad that people continue to think that. And and uh, she just really got agitated. And, and uh, then as I talked to her more and found out about Irvin's life, and, and uh, uh, it, it occurred to me that really the interesting story was not so much who really wrote the song. It was really more about Irvin and Chubby themselves and their lives because they were just uh, – very tragic figures, both of them, and uh, brilliant in their own way, but but deeply flawed. And if you were a writer of fiction, you couldn't have made up any more oddball characters than, than Irvin and Chubby. So we were able to dispense with the who wrote the song pretty fast because it was easy to see 
just by looking at the copyright uh, on the original sheet music, which I did when I went to the um, copyright office in Washington, D.C., and they looked it up for me, uh, it was easy to see that Chubby's story didn't hold up. Um, what Chubby did do was was popularize the song in the early days because he was, um, as you know, the probably the greatest, arguably the greatest bluegrass fiddler of all time and, and was maybe Bill Monroe's best bluegrass fiddler. And Bill Monroe was the originator of bluegrass music pretty much. And uh, Chubby played the song all over the world with Bill Monroe and, and recorded it. And, and it was eventually, of course, picked up by other mainstream artists. And uh, so you could certainly say Chubby uh, Chubby got the song out into the mainstream, but he unquestionably, in, in my view, did not help write it. Audiences continue to love the song Orange Blossom Special. Playing this virtuosic piece almost guarantees a standing ovation from bluegrass and country music fans. Even rock bands and symphony orchestras are among the amazingly diverse groups who have recorded and performed this song. I enjoy Johnny Cash's version, which is kind of ironic because it's a fiddle tune, but there is not a fiddle to be heard in that song. It's a saxophone and a harmonica. Um, I've also heard it played, uh, as I said, by symphony orchestras. Those are always fun to hear. Um, uh, the Grateful Dead have recorded it. Uh, everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. And uh, uh, it always sounds like Orange Blossom Special, but it's written in a way that you can improvise and have fun with it. So uh, there are a lot of great versions out there. Randy Knoll's book, Fiddler's Curse, the untold story of Urban T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special is available by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on Books and Gifts. I ride the orange blossom special And I'll lose in New York This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about our annual meeting and other special events, and much more. There are some sweet memories in Fellsmere, a town just east of the St. John's Marsh in Indian River County. Janie Gould has more. During the depths of the Great Depression, a brave soul by the name of Frank Heiser overcame all odds, from drainage problems to freezes and hurricanes, and established Fellsmere as a center for commercial sugarcane production. He planted sugarcane, built a refinery, and marketed the finished product as Florida Crystals. Heiser, who died in 1961, is credited with keeping Fellsmere afloat during tough economic times. He thought sugarcane would do well here. How come? I don't know what inspired him, but he talked some people into letting him put a, an experimental patch of sugarcane in, and it did do well. Joel Tyson is a former mayor of Fellsmere. His ties to the town go back to the 1940s. Eventually, they put in 17,000 acres of sugarcane. I thought that sugarcane needed to have soil with muck in it. Like the soil around the lake. Well, it does. Around that's, lake what, that's what that is out there. Well, you're right on the banks of the St. John's River. They started the St. John's River. That's the muckland out there is unbelievable. Still? Yeah. It's a sod farm now. At first, they were not refining the sugar. They would squeeze the cane 
and cook the juice, you know, to make it into a, kind of a slurry or something, and then they would ship it up, I think, to Louisiana, and that's where they refined it. Well, they decided that they needed to do the whole thing right out here. You know what the process entails, yep. from growing sugarcane to processing. What happened? First of all, when you get ready to harvest sugarcane, you have to burn the fields to get rid of all the extra foliage and so forth that's out there. So that people can come in and cut it? Exactly right. And they had the cane cutters. They were from down the islands. They would go in and cut the cane and load it onto wagons. They had a railroad track out there and these uh, little engines that pulled it up. They would haul the sugar into the mill and then it would go through a process of squeezing the sugar to get the juice out of it. Then they would capture that and then they had to cook that juice. It would make like a syrup. Then they had these great big centrifugal vats that they would put that in and they would spin it and they would spin off the molasses and the more you would spin that you'd have brown sugar and if you keep spinning it long enough it would spin all of that molasses off of it and you'd have pure crystal sugar. Once they got the crystallizing and so forth that process then they could do the whole thing that went from the field to the juice to the cooking and uh, crystallized it and bagged it. Of course, the railroad went out there, and they loaded it up into railroad cars and ship it out to market. It's called Florida Crystals. You can still buy sugar with that logo, that brand name on it. I don't know if somebody bought that. I guess that was Felsmere's largest employer. During the Depression, it was probably one of the largest employers anywhere in the country. People would ride the rails, you know, the hobos and so forth. There were all kinds of people that would come into Felsmere looking for jobs. Well, anybody that had a job out there would kill to keep the job. They worked all during the Depression, never slowed down. Is that right? It was phenomenal because there was no jobs to be had anywhere in the United States. And they were coming to Felsmere? They were coming to Felsmere from all over the country because they heard that there was a sugar mill out here that they might be able to get a job. Did you ever taste cane right from the field? We would chew it as a kid. It grows in joints, you know, and you take those joints and peel the outer bark off of it. It's real fibery. You ever chewed on a piece of sugar cane? I never have. Well, it's real juicy. I mean, you would cut it into little cubes and chew it. In the 1940s, Frank Heiser and his partner sold the company. Sugarcane production in Felsmere ceased in the 1960s. Joel Tyson is retired from the military. He also worked 19 years as an overseas consultant. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In September 1998, archaeologists digging at the mouth of the Miami River uncovered what may be one of the most important ancient sites in North America. In the path of a $100 million development, the Miami Circle became the center of a heated debate over its worth to scholars, developers, and the community. Bill Dudley has this report. It has given the Miami community a single spot to call, this is ours, this is part of our heritage. Andy Bryan is president of the Historical Museum of Southern Florida. And it has 
taken this divergent group of people that call South Florida home and given them the opportunity to say, yeah, that's, that's part of my heritage also. Whether they come from another country outside our borders or not, there is a somewhat of a unity that I see forming in people's ownership of the property, uh, and it's ongoing. Only a few years ago, an apartment complex stood on this two-acre site. When it was torn down, a routine archaeological check revealed a 38-foot circle with a series of small rectangular holes cut into the limestone bedrock with thousands of important artifacts spread throughout the area. Thus far, we're looking at an average date of the area of the circle of about circa A.D. 200, uh, with some dates even closer to uh, 500 B.C. Robert Carr is executive director of Miami's Archaeological and Historical Conservancy. We're also continuing the analysis of the recovered artifacts, which is ongoing, and are looking at probably several tens of thousands of objects and animal bones and shell. Some of the artifacts suggest the circle was a ceremonial place, built by ancestors of the Tequesta, a tribe of indigenous people who died out several hundred years ago. It was part of a settlement at the mouth of the river that lasted over 1,500 years. I, I think part of what's come out of our discovery is that these ancient people had a very direct relationship to the South Florida environment, a very effective and a very successful one. And certainly the fact that 1,800 years ago people were living at the mouth of the river and effectively not only building structures, but building those structures in concert with a balance to both the, the river and the land and the sky in terms of some of the potential celestial uh, alignments that have been assigned to the site suggests to me that these people were very well developed in terms of the technology of nature. That is uh, almost an oxymoron in the sense when you put the two together, but in reality these people were very tuned in on a, on a cosmic level. And that kind of knowledge is very important for current Western people to understand because we are such a technocratic society, it's hard for us to look back and find anything enduring about preliterate people that built their structures out of wood and thatch. Now plans are being discussed to interpret the site as a public park. Some believe it has the potential to be one of the Miami area's most recognized attractions. The fact that it's on some of the hottest waterfront property in Dade County has added to the public's interest. One of Bob Carr's last challenges before stepping down recently from his post as longtime director of the Miami-Dade Historical Preservation Division was participating in a dialogue between those who wanted the Circle site preserved and those who were worried about the cost and about Miami being perceived as anti-development. The question has been asked, what price history? The fact is that public monies were used to acquire this site a little more than two acres of land for 26 and three-quarter millions of dollars. That's a tremendous amount of money by anybody's wallet. Was it worth it? Sure, the answer is yes, because land is not only valuable in terms of its economic use, but as its cultural use. And we're talking about a quality of life issue. And the fact is, if somebody's willing to spend 15 or $20 million to build something there, then you've got to be willing to spend that kind of money to preserve something that's there. So I think those values have to be equal. There has to be uh, a fair return for people's property. Uh, you have to respect private property rights. At the time of this interview, Carr was preparing to meet with a TV crew from Britain, where many people find in the South Florida site an echo of their own Stonehenge. We know that there were rituals performed there that had to deal with respecting the gods and the world of nature that was part of Miami at that time, and we have found those kinds of offerings. So we know on a certain level uh, it certainly has to be a sacred site. 
But what does the circle mean to Floridians today? And why should we continue to hold as sacred, as Native American groups have suggested, the ground and artifacts of a people who died out untold centuries ago? I, I think all life on Earth has a, a certain amount of respect that is commanded of it, especially to, I think we should look at earlier populations in the same manner that we do in our more recent past and hold them in the same kind of reverence. And I think it's only appropriate that we do that for any site that has what we think uh, spiritual qualities about it that represents early uh, habitation here. There's so much yet to discover, and the amazing thing is somebody can look at something a uh, hundred different ways and then on the 101st w uh, attempt at looking at it see something very important. And through time our questions change, and therefore what we're looking for in terms of information changes. We're at a point now where DNA analysis is now becoming important, so human bones now become the source of an incredible amount of potential information about linking how communities and how people and native people are all related to one another. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Until next week, I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.